From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Dr. Jackie Dosal, and I'm in private practice in Coral Gables, Florida at Skin Associates of South Florida. And this is the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, April 2023 podcast. The title of the paper we're going to review today is called A Propensity Score Match Cohort Study Identifying an Association of Acne, but not Oral Antibiotic or Isotretinoin Use with Risk of Incident Inflammatory Balances. And today we have the privilege of talking with one of the authors, Dr. John Barbieri. He is the Director of the Advanced Acne Therapeutics Clinic at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Barbieri. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am so excited to talk about this. This is such an important piece of work that you guys did for the practice of dermatology. Give me some idea of why you decided to look into this. Yeah, so there have been a a lot of discussions over the years about whether, especially isotretinoin use in the treatment of acne is associated with inflammatory bowel disease. And it's been a topic that's really been up for the debate. Um, But additionally, there's some question of whether acne being an inflammatory condition itself might be associated with inflammatory bowel disease, and could that potentially confound some of these studies? And beyond that, oral antibiotics are most common treatment for patients with acne, as in other settings, and including in some studies in acne, been associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So if patients are getting oral antibiotics, and then that's failing, and they're getting isotretinoin afterward, might it be the oral antibiotics they got before isotretinoin, rather than the isotretinoin itself, that might lead to potential associations or case reports about isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease. And so we were hoping to try to add to the literature to try and disentangle some of these effects. Is acne itself associated with inflammatory bowel disease? Are oral antibiotics associated with inflammatory bowel disease? And is isotretinoin potentially associated with inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, and I really loved how you guys designed this, which I'll let you get into in a moment because there's so much nuance to it, correct? Because if you have a patient that's on systemic medicine with either antibiotics or isotretinoin, they obviously have more severe acne and obviously may be in a similar pathway as that inflammatory cascade that you can see with inflammatory bowel disease. So please do dive in. I loved how you guys designed the study. To look at this question, we use a data set called TriNetX. And what that is, it's sort of a collection of routinely obtained healthcare data. So patients medical visits, their prescriptions, et cetera, for a number of different health systems in the United States, including some abroad as well. And then within that data set, we created a few different cohorts. We had patients who had no history of acne, so they never seen a doctor and been diagnosed with acne. We had patients who had acne, but were never treated with a systemic medication. So patients likely treated with topical medications. And then we created a couple of cohorts of patients who were treated with systemic medications. We had a group of patients who were treated with antibiotics, but not before that point, isotretinoin or spironolactone, another systemic medication. And then we had one of patients who were treated with isotretinoin, but not orotetracycline antibiotics or spironolactone. And we'd hope to create another one that was just spironolactone because spironolactone would be a really nice comparator group of people who have more moderate to severe acne but aren't exposed, but is not really thought to be a medicine that would cause inflammatory bowel disease. So it'd be a nice comparator group, but we just didn't have enough sample size to do that. And then our goal is to compare across these groups to try to answer these questions. So if we see that those with acne 
or those with acne who were treated with systemic medications have a higher incidence of inflammatory bowel disease than those who don't have acne, that could suggest that acne itself might be associated with inflammatory bowel disease. And then if we wanted to try to understand whether these medicines are associated with inflammatory bowel disease, we could compare them to each other or to that group of patients with acne who aren't being treated with these systemic medications to try to control for acne itself. So that's a somewhat imperfect comparison because those who aren't getting these systemic medications might have milder acne. Right, right. But you did have a really nice balance. So you had everybody with this data set, you could essentially find a matching cohort that didn't have the exposure, correct? You could try to, as best you can, make these groups that are allowing you to answer the questions. But the, the one real limitation is I would have loved to have been able to have that spironolactone group because that would be a perfect comparator for both the do oral antibiotics cause inflammatory bowel disease and does isotretinoin, is that associated with inflammatory bowel disease? Because you know that's a medicine that's really never had any associations or questions about could it be associated with inflammatory bowel disease? And on top of that, it's something that's used in people with more moderate to your acne. Yeah, that would have been nice, but the limits of studying, right? So, but you found some really interesting things. So dive in, let's go through some of the results. Yeah, so I think the first thing we find is that acne itself actually has a pretty notable association with inflammatory bowel disease. So if we compare patients who have acne versus patients who don't, we've and these are patients who aren't exposed to oral tetracyclines or isotretinoin, so just acne itself, there's nothing else in there. Just acne itself, those patients have a 1.4 higher odds of developing inflammatory bowel disease in the next year from that diagnosis compared to patients who don't have acne and who are otherwise matched. So in all of these groups, we tried to match them on age, on sex, on other risk factors for inflammatory bowel disease, like combined or contraceptive use, and on race and ethnicity to try to deal with other potential factors that might be associated with risk of inflammatory bowel disease. So this is controlling for all those other factors because we matched on them. We find that those who have acne have a higher risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease both for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis than those who don't have acne. And this is, I think, the the biggest take-home point from this article, which is such an important thing and can make dermatologists feel a lot better that we'll get to it, but that, you know, it's not just isotretinoin, as many litigators will say that's causing inflammatory bowel disease. But if you have an inflammatory skin process, it likely translates to a possible inflammatory systemic process. Yeah, this, you know, it makes or sense. Acne form. is sort of a TH17 disease and inflammatory bowel disease, there's potentially aberrant TH17 immunology and signaling as well. And we've seen this with other chronic inflammatory skin diseases where there's associations between them and inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah, right. Psoriasis and cardiovascular disease is another good example. So I completely agree. Okay, now what about the group that was exposed to tetracyclines? Because the previous studies that are in the literature were saying, no, it's not the isotretinoin that's causing inflammatory bowel disease. It's the prior tetracyclines before they get to isotretinoin. That's the risk factor. The antibiotics are the risk factor. Yeah, so there's a study from David Margolis's group from about a decade ago that looked in a data set called THEN, which is a UK data set, about whether there might be a potential association between oral tetracycline antibiotics like doxycycline and minocycline and inflammatory bowel disease. And in that study, they did find an association between oral antibiotic use for acne and inflammatory bowel disease. And there are studies from other fields um, with antibiotic use for other indications than acne that also suggest that there's this association. In our study, when we compared patients with acne who were treated without systemic medications 
versus those who are treated with oral tetracycline class antibiotics. And again, matching on some of those other factors that might contribute to risk of inflammatory bowel disease, we didn't find any difference between them. In fact, the odds ratio is exactly one. So at least in our study, we didn't find evidence to suggest that oral antibiotic use as is done in routine clinical practice for acne is associated with an increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease. That's really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Now, a caveat is other studies have. So I wouldn't say like, don't worry about it. It's not an issue. I think it is something we have to think about. And antibiotic stewardship, of course, is important on an, in and of itself. So this is something where our study, I think, is relatively reassuring, but there's certainly a body of literature and other studies that suggest that there may be potential risks. So I think we, we shouldn't take our antibiotic use lightly either. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. Okay. Now we get to the good one, the isotretinoin group. Yeah. So for isotretinoin, we, we did two comparisons. We compared isotretinoin with just acne. And again, here we found no significant association between isotretinoin exposure and risk of inflammatory bowel disease. And then we also compared isotretinoin with oral tetracycline class antibiotics because, of course, isotretinoin is mostly used in those with more severe acne. And if acne itself is associated with inflammatory bowel disease, and we're comparing people with severe acne treated with isotretinoin versus mild acne treated with topicals, there might be some confounding by acne severity. So to try to reduce that risk and make the populations more kind of moderate to severe acne, we compared with antibiotics. And in that analysis, which is a little bit more limited due to the sample size, we again didn't see an association between isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease. That's, that's great data. Just like I said, it's not foolproof, but this is reassuring for those of us that do prescribe isotretinoin that we can counsel appropriately that inflammatory bowel disease does not seem to be a significant risk based on most recent data. Because as you mentioned in your paper, a lot of the uh, previous literature that talked about isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease risk did not control for these factors. Is that right? Yeah. Many prior studies, they don't look at whether patients had oral antibiotics before. And in some of the studies that do, you actually see that the effect size of the association goes down when you consider oral antibiotic exposure. And what that tells me is that there's potentially some confounding going on. When you take into account the oral antibiotics, you don't see as much of an association. Mm -hmm. and, and this is actually an area where I think we need some updated meta-analyses. There, there were some from a few years ago that looked at you know, the body of evidence with respect to this question of, is isotretinoin associated with inflammatory bowel disease? And those studies suggested that there's no association, but they also didn't really try to break out what were the studies, uh, how were they designed? Because you, know, you could worry one, that if you don't control for oral antibiotics, that might be a problem in your analysis. And the other thing that's worth considering is this is, as you mentioned at the beginning, a very contentious topic in the legal space. So there have been a bunch of people who are suing manufacturers of isotretinoin who would like to have studies that suggest there is an association. And of course, the manufacturers of isotretinoin would like to have studies that there's not an association. So it's important to think about who's doing the study and could the people doing the study be biased too? Who's funding it? And so I think there's also a need to think about evaluating our body of literature, not just based on the study design, but also the study funders to see if that impacts the results that we see and if there's any bias in literature. Absolutely. That's a critical eye for all the studies we read is super important. And, and of course, your study was not funded by any group that was uh, involved in the outcome. Correct. Yeah, so our, our study, we have really no relevant conflicts of interest. It really just trying to figure out the truth to help guide our practices. If there is a risk, we want to make sure that we're 
counseling patients and addressing it and taking steps to mitigate it. If there's not a risk, then that's reassuring and helps us you know, think about when and how we can use this medication. And you mentioned in your paper that there are even some studies that show that isotretinoin can be used safely in current inflammatory bowel disease that's stable and under control. Yeah, my colleague, Alexandra Charo at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital, she's looked into this a bit with some of our data and shown that in patients who have stable inflammatory bowel disease, that it seems like we can use isotretinoin safely. Now, these are small case series, but still it's, it's helpful additional data points to guide us in our clinical decision-making. Very reassuring and something that you can show to a gastroenterologist. And of course, we need to defer to our colleagues in the GI space, but very, very helpful. I think we want to you know, collaborate with them to work together to, to make shared decision-making with our patients. Absolutely. I have one other question just about the study design. How did you pick one year follow-up for picking up any signal for inflammatory bowel disease? Is that just practical nature? Yeah, it's a mix of a few things. So there's a practical aspect to it, which is that these data sets, patients are only in them for so long, they might move to a different health system. Some patients, they die, pass away, other things can happen. So if you set a really long follow-up period, sometimes you run into issues where one, they're getting new exposures in the future that might not be relevant and you're not really able to control for effectively anymore. And two, you just have a really small sample size because you start to lose your ability to detect things once you have everybody dropping out of the data set. The other uh, issue that you can run into, though, on the other side, if you make too short of a window, is, you know, imagine there's something called ascertainment bias, which is that you might identify a signal because people are kind of interacting with the healthcare system more. And you can imagine people on isotretinoin, they're getting seen often very frequently, at least in the United States, because of the eye pledge requirements. And patients who aren't on isotretinoin on topicals or who are on oral antibiotics are getting seen much less frequently. So if two people develop symptoms, let's say at month two, well, the person isotretinoin, they're seeing their doctor every four weeks, but the person on oral antibiotics might not see their doctor for another month or two. So that person on isotretinoin might get diagnosed earlier. And if you set too short of a follow-up period, you might have an issue with ascertainment bias where you see an effect that isn't about the condition, but just about people's interactions with the healthcare system. And so we tried to set a year as a way to balance those two different limitations. If we set it too long, we run to sample size and follow-up issues. If we set it too short, there's a risk of ascertainment bias. A follow-up question just to your study is, do you counsel your patients in practice about inflammatory bowel disease? Do you talk about it in your informed consent or does this data tell you that you don't need to talk about it? I think you do need to talk about it for a couple of reasons. I mean, first it's on the I pledge consent. So you sort of inherently have to, or they're gonna see it there. So it's gonna come up in that way. I think a lot of patients have questions about this. So to not address it, I think, is even if they don't explicitly bring it up, I think many of them have heard about it and are thinking about it. And so it leaves that in their mind unaddressed. So I do think it's something that we need to counsel patients about. And finally, like, you know, this study suggests there isn't an association between isotretinone and inflammatory bowel disease, and many others have also found a similar conclusion. But what we can't exclude is some very, very small effect. It's absolutely possible that there could be some small effect that we're just not powered to detect. So I think it is important to have this discussion because there are these concerns. It's in the I-Pledge consent. And I think we can say the body of evidence suggests that we don't think that there's an increased risk, but it's possible that there's a really small risk that we just can't detect in our studies and even in our meta-analyses combining studies together. So I do think it's an important conversation to have for patients to be fully counseled and aware about potential risks. 
do you view this topic similar to the depression topic with isotretinoin where there's a possible risk, but a lot of our studies show that it's, it's not being detected? I view it actually a little bit differently. So with our literature on inflammatory bowel disease, we really don't see any evidence of an association with neuropsychiatric adverse events like depression and suicidality. We see two different things. So we absolutely have case reports where you give a patient isotretinoin, they have mood changes, you stop, they're better, you give it to them again, they come back. That challenge you challenge evidence is really strong and compelling that some people, it seems like it's unpredictable and idiosyncratic, but some people do get real and meaningful mood changes from isotretinoin. And I think that differs from the data we have about inflammatory disease. The other piece of data we have that's different is when we really look at neuropsychiatric adverse events with isotretinoin, they actually seem to be less frequent than other treatment options like oral antibiotics. And I think this intuitively makes sense. If you have acne, we know acne itself is strongly associated with psychosocial comorbidities. So if you have a really effective treatment for acne that gets people's skin clear, that helps alleviate that stigma and psychosocial burden that they experience on a daily basis, it can make sense that you might actually on a population level make people less likely to be depressed, less likely to take an antidepressant. And that's what we see in our data. So for mood changes, I think the counseling is a bit different. My expectation is that your mood's going to improve because this medicine is so effective at treating your acne and acne itself causes mood changes. But we really have to monitor for these rare and somewhat unpredictable, but important and meaningful mood changes that can happen. So I do think the counseling is a bit different for the neuropsychiatric and mood changes than for the inflammatory bowel disease potential risks. I absolutely love the way you describe that because that's that's exactly my experience as well. So the population data that I've read doesn't support that actually, that the mood could increase, but absolutely I have anecdotal reports of people where they just need to stop. And if you put them back on, the mood changes come back. So I love the way you described that. That's wonderful. Good. So any other sort of take-home points that you want to review from this study? Now, I think that the main thing is just when we're treating patients with acne, we have a number of different options, especially when it comes to systemic medications. And it's important really to engage in shared decision-making because they each have different strengths and weaknesses. And it's about finding the right one for your individual patient. Wonderful. This was such a great study and so such an important contribution to the literature. So I thank you and your group for doing this. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.